Welcome back to Kingdom Casts. It's the first Wednesday in February, February 5th, 2020. Comic books are out because it's Wednesday, Wednesday, Wednesday. What are the jeopardies of being a real-life superhero? Well, we'll talk briefly about that. Up for review and spoiler commentary today is a brand new Darth Vader book, another issue of Batman with the new writer on it, and Justice League gets its new writer as well. Is it a step up or a step down? Ahead of you is Kingdom Cast Podcast for the first Wednesday in February. Neither Albert nor I are in any way responsible for anything we say at any time. It should be known that we're podcasting under the influence. I'm Stan Daniel, and with me as always is Albert Marsh. So, Albert. Yeah. What you up to? Not much. You remember one of my quirks, one of the things that really got under my skin And it's kind of gone by the wayside here over the years. But there's a news story that popped up recently and reminded me how pissed off I used to get at these people. Is the quote-unquote real-life superhero phenomena. You remember why I'm talking about these guys and gals that would get dressed up in their superhero costumes and go out late at night on patrol in their cities. And their cities were usually like downtown Orlando. Yeah. (laughs) Seattle. Well, there was that documentary, and I think one of the guys was literally just some dude that hung out at bars and people bought him drinks, I think. Yeah, yeah, in the middle of downtown Orlando, yeah. ca- uh, Captain Courageous or whatever. I, I can't remember his name. And if we get names wrong in this, we don't care. Yeah, uh, it doesn't matter. They're <laughs> yeah, not real superheroes. Well, yeah, but you never hear. You, <laughs> they were always in Seattle. Or Point Place, Wisconsin. They were Portland never... or someplace like that. Yeah, they're not in Atlanta. They're not in Detroit. And they're certainly not in downtown Birmingham. <laughs> yeah, HBO had that documentary. And I think the name of the documentary was just Heroes. Or Is that right? Does that sound right? Something, something like that, yeah. It, it was something real simple. It shouldn't be more than a Google search to find that HBO documentary. But one set of these superheroes that were going out on patrol in their costumes and all, they were point blank trying to entrap people into a attack. Yeah, because they would sit on the corner and try to get Johns and stuff like that. Yeah, one was even yelling insults or riding a skateboard right in the middle of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, trying to get, and that's called, that is entrapment. And then there's another one, and this is the one that the news story has come out on. His, his code name was Phoenix Jones. There's this video I remember way back when, I'm, I'm talking this five, six years ago, of Phoenix Jones, <laughs> some people leaving a bar in Seattle, and they're drunk and they're laughing with each other, or they're buzzed. They're not even really drunk, if I recall, when the cops got there, but they're buzzed and they're kind of shoving and laughing. If you've ever gone out, you've ever gone out to a bar with a group of friends, this is just standard behavior. Nothing's going on or anything. And he runs down there with a damn thing of pepper spray saying, leave this woman alone. And the woman was like, hey, you know, it's my boyfriend or what have you. And he got off real lucky because if he ran up to somebody on South Side of Birmingham coming out of a bar when they're buzzed, what do you think the outcome of that is going to be? <laughs> yeah. It's not going to be the, (laughs) it's not going to be wait and let the police get there to sort this thing out. It turns out that real life, quote, unquote, real life superhero of Seattle, Phoenix Jones, he was apparently trying to sell MDMA 
to some cops or the cops had run a sting operation, which is not entrapment because the cops are doing it. <laughs> Completely different thing. There's several steps to this. Apparently, they've got him accepting payment online, agreeing for a meet in a public location for additional money, bringing the actual drugs to the public location. They've, they've got him dead to rights. But he's been a thorn in their side for quite some time. In all honesty, the whole thing could have been avoided had he not been selling MDMA. That's also, what is it? It's Molly. Is that also, that's also what X is, right, Albert? I don't know anything about any of these drugs. Albert, don't, don't pretend just, the reason I'm just, answering you is I'm old and married. You're out there partying all the time. Oh, I am. <laughs> Listen, man, if people hand me something, I just take it. <laughs> I mean, as long as I wake up the next morning and my butthole don't hurt, I don't really care. <laughs> I'm just going to assume that MDMA is Molly and also what we used to know as X. So anyway, they've arrested him. And I don't know if he's, surely to God, he's up for arraignment. There's three different sources I got this from. I don't even know why my phone went off. My phone's programmed to alert me to like comic book stories. I don't see how this is a comic book story. <laughs> But I just found it interesting. It sounds like some Lex Luthor app or something like that. Well, it's a it's superhero it's got busted. <laughs> Didn't we do this story before? <laughs> it never struck me as anything serious. I know there's a contingency, or there was a contingency of real life superheroes that would go out there and hand out water and support bags to the homeless. God bless them. Knock yourself out. I don't know why you can't do it in jeans and a t-shirt, but okay, whatever, if you're actually helping people. But the people that the HBO documentary followed and a couple of other things followed, they're out there looking to tie up with evil. Well, that one, like the, the documentary did a good job because it showed four or five different groups or people. Yeah. And everyone was different. Well, yeah, you the had, guy and... Well, in... had Phoenix Jones that took it serious you had the group that was just going around trying to entrap people being idiots yeah. you had the guy hanging out in orlando they had the the guy that was, that really needed help like he was living in his van yeah the his mom was, was horribly guy. was horribly worried about him that was a sad part any of them that are out there like phoenix jones and the guys I, it was a superhero group or whatever that they thought they were trying to entrap people that just really really irked me for some reason bothered the hell out of me i enjoy comic books i enjoy movies i enjoy fiction stories and all that there's a line here and i've got more respect for bronies than i do the real life superhero i don't know i wouldn't go that far <laughs> but i don't even think bronies is really much of a thing anymore <laughs> shout out to our brony listeners there i think that, i think they sort of killed their own fan base <laughs> well there was a documentary on the bronies as well it didn't treat called, them nearly as well as the HBO documentary. Probably called Had a Spot of... <laughs> Can't just... You, you don't just take a paintbrush and wash right over all of them. <laughs> of course you can. It's America. It's all we do. <laughs> so I just want to get that out there. I thought that was... I don't know what I thought of that news. I just saw it and thought it was interesting. And if I were to set myself up as something like that, running around in a costume or something, surely to God, I am not going to sell drugs and let it backfire my face as I have run in after run in with the Seattle Police Department. Unless that's what Batman's been doing the entire time and Gotham is protecting his drug network from the Penguin and all the other bad guys. Maybe he just sells the drugs and he's like, look at this 
Look at this junkie and then punches him out. <laughs> this trash on my streets. This is my corner, Frank. My corner. This is a respectable community we've got here. Well, let's hurry this along. Suddenly I have a hankering to go back and watch Breaking Bad. <laughs> we got a little tidbits of news here and there about a couple of things. Apparently the people that was responsible for comic book imprint title that's not doing gangbusters now is going to bring us a new one. Oh, Valiant Comics, yeah. Uh, apparently four or five people from Valiant Comics are getting together and about to bring us a comic line called Bad Idea and they're touting a lot of talent, but I don't think any of this talent's been confirmed. Have you heard anything about that? Not really. I don't think there's anything there to report. It's a new comic book imprint called Bad Idea, and the people that brought back Valiant Comics are bringing it back. Would you would you refer to Valiant Comics as a raging success? No, Valiant Comics got sold. Well, I mean, it, it, if it got sold, it must be worth something. I, I just... No, it was like one of those things. It's the guys that brought it back a few years ago were getting hard up on money. So they took an investment from this guy, some, some big businessman or something like that. Was he in a costume did he, and did he offer a molly? No, but it's like one of those things where he gives them money for an investment. Yeah. And then after a certain amount of time, the way the contract's set up, they can either pay him back the money he gave them or you don't want to pay back the money or can't pay back the money i write you another check for x amount of dollars and then i own it and the people that was running get valiant would just said you know what we'll just take the money so some investment firm or something or dude owns valiant now i think or something like that i just never considered it even when they relaunched their brand it wasn't flying off the shelf. I mean, it did okay. We've just never had much success with it. Quantum and Woody, I saw relaunched last week. I read the book. They weren't the Quantum and Woody I remembered. Anyway, Bad Idea Comics is coming soon to a comic stand near you. Is that the actual name? Yeah, I've got a logo here. Okay, just making sure. Yeah, start date, February 6, 2020. <laughs> so by the time you hear this podcast, I guess they're they're going to announce things tomorrow okay. because all two both of the news stories I've got them is dated today, February fifth. So we'll just have to wait and see. We'll follow it. Could be interesting. Could just fall by the wayside. <laughs> the news, not the comic book company. Although the comic book company could too. Christopher McQuarrie, director at works with Tom Cruise a lot fans keep hitting him up about superman because apparently him and that guy that uh, they've hired to play superman in those last couple of movies there want to do a movie together but now apparently warner brothers has upset him or insulted him to the point where he's never asking them again to do a superman movie or a movie I don't know if it's a, in all movies with Warner Brothers. That seems like kind of slamming the door on your foot. But if you're one of Tom Cruise's favorite people to work with, then... Well, see, so he what? Does Tom Cruise... Who does Mission Impossible? Yeah, that's him, Christopher McQuarrie. Yeah, but who does it? What, what studio has those movies? I think that's Tom Cruise independent. I don't know who distributes it, but I think Tom Cruise is independently uh, producing most of those. There's a distribution rights to it. Paramount is responsible for distribution on most of the Mission Impossible yeah. movies. Yeah. What were you going to say? I don't know. <laughs> well, anyway, Macquarie, Macquarie is apparently not going to do that. And when he made the announcement that he asked once and he will never ask again, Rob Liefeld chimed in on Twitter 
I assume Twitter, but Rob Liefeld chimed in somewhere saying, shame on Warner Brothers. When I first read that, I thought that was Ryan Reynolds that chimed in saying, shame on Warner Brothers. And I thought, oh, that's heavy. And then when I realized it was Rob Liefeld, I was, oh, I don't think they know who you are, Rob. (laughs) What I'm hearing on Superman and Green Lantern, and tell me if you're hearing the same thing, is that Bad Robot, J.J. Abrams is coming in and they're looking to recast a younger Superman to fit in with Pattinson's Batman's age. Bad Robot and J.J. Abrams, in addition to whatever they're doing with Justice League Dark, is storylines up for Green Lantern and Superman. Yeah, I'd prefer it if J.J. didn't touch anything ever again. No, I'm down for that. I'd like to see J.J. Superman. I'm not. But it'll be cool. Be some soulless (laughs) husk of a movie. Don't you start, man. (laughs) It's too early in the program for you to start. Would you rather see Christopher McQuarrie do it? Because McQuarrie wanted both Green Lantern and Superman also. I mean, I'd be fine with that. It's not J.J. It's well known that I don't like the guy playing superman i don't think he's qualified to play superman that's okay i don't like the people that play in star wars don't jump on my case you don't like the guy playing superman either well you won't do the podcast for star wars we're going to do the podcast for star wars i just got done interviewing face on yesterday as a matter of fact i got to put his together and then we're doing our big time star wars podcast my god this may be a podcast that runs 24 straight hours god God help us all. <laughs> hey, let me ask you this. You know more about Dragon Ball than I do. Oh, um, I do. Well, I assumed you did. Do you? Well, you've you have. If you I would have to, I would have to. Yeah, that's exactly right. Disney is rumored. I didn't even know they own Dragon Ball. They don't but, own Dragon Ball. Well, apparently, Disney's rumored in trying to make a what's going to be called a DBZ verse, like the Marvel verse. That doesn't mean they own it. Dragon Ball is probably owned by the guy that created it still, I'd imagine. Or his studio or something. I'm pretty sure it's his. Yeah, Disney owns Dragon Ball rights. No, they well, yeah, they, they may get the rights, but they don't own it. Disney now owns the film rights to the franchise Dragon Ball Z because who, who, Fox who? had it before. Oh, okay. That, yeah, maybe that may work out like that. I don't know. Uh, they got a Fox transition. Is there enough material there to do a uh, similar there's, thing with the movies with Marvelverse? There's decades worth of stuff there. So it's okay. So they've got plenty of. It, it, I mean, the story itself, since it, you know, manga isn't like American comics. Usually it's just you have the creator and his one book, and it's just that one book that goes on forever. And occasionally there's a side thing or two. Yeah. And but Dragon Ball, yeah, you could do all sorts of stuff with that. That stuff's going on forever. There's another revenue stream for them. <laughs> Oh, dear Lord. Okay. And also, while we're talking about comic book, uh, we're just kind of jumping around here. The things, the interesting things that have popped up. When is the DC timeline situation going to be over with? We've been dealing with it for how many years? How many years would you say we've been dealing with this since it became New 52? No, New 52, they just sort of said, hey, here's New 52. And And they thought that was going to be it. And clearly that didn't work. They're saying now that Doomsday Clock was not the sequel flash forward one shot Uh that kicked off Rebirth. They're saying now that on free comic book day, DC Comics is going to release a comic called Generation Zero. I saw that. uh, Yeah, it ties Flash to Dr. Manhattan. I really did think that Doomsday Clock cleared the way for a lot of this if they just all fall in line. But apparently they're not all falling in line. 
it seems to be a bunch of different factions inside of DC. What do you think? I don't, I don't know. I, I keep reading all these rumors and stuff about DC, but they, as far as what they've laid out in the comics, it all seems to line up fine. I'm not so sure. I mean, did you read Justice League this week? Yeah. That was confusing as hell. And not on the story point. The story point wasn't confusing. It was just, wait, what? They need to do something and fast and get off of this. It's become DC Universe's business to not answer the timeline questions while having a never-ending cacophony of stories that are revolving around the timeline question. Yeah, I think, I, I, think, think, I think we'll get there. I think, for the most part, they just don't want to show too much until probably free comic book day. Uh, I'm hoping they do have an answer. I didn't think it was going to. I thought we'd be well underway by Free Comic Book Day. And the interesting thing is on the cover, in addition to Bat Manson being in a prominent place on the cover, in the middle of the cover, that's Wally West Flash. Yeah. Okay, you got my interest with Wally West Flash, because if there's one point of connection to all of this, he's it. Just, oh dear God, has nobody killed the Batman who laughs yet? Not yet. He, well, he may be in Metal 2 or whatever they're going to call it. I, I just, somebody, please put him out of my misery. Can we bring, can we please have Superboy Prime back just to kill him? Yeah, he's in Shazam. I know he's back. I know he's in Shazam. I just want Batman who laughs or Batman's gone. I think we should all... As comic book fans, everybody who is tired of Batman Who Laughs just refer to him as Batmanson and keep doing it over and over and over again until they reprimand uh, Grant Morrison again. Yeah. Grant's put out a rallying cry, so all we have to do is answer it. <laughs> Emily Blunt was seen talking to Marvel Cinematic Universe people. Of course, speculation is running wild that she's doing it for the Fantastic Four because everybody on the internet wants Emily Blunt and her husband, John Krasinski, to be Mr. Fantastic and Sue Richards. I think it's a cute idea. I don't know if it's the best idea. I mean, it, it'd work, I guess. They've got chemistry together. They work real well together. I just never considered Reed that likable, as likable as John Krasinski comes across. Yeah, but, but, Mar but Disney's not going to do un unlockable main characters. Marvel, you mean? Disney. Disney. I thought you said DC, but Disney. No. Okay. Well, that that's right. I, I've never liked Reed. I've always been in agreement that Doom's in the right, Reed's in the wrong. Also, Emily could have been there meeting with them for any number of reasons. There's so many projects and stuff that they're working on and coming down the channels of Disney Plus and the Marvel Cinematic Line. She could have been there for any number of reasons. Did you see the Super Bowl preview for the Disney Plus line? Yes, I did. Well, what did you think of it? Uh, seemed pretty good. What they showed, I really liked. I know it's just a one-off, a gag or a goof or something, but they've got her in her comic book costume or a cosplay-looking version of her comic book costume for Scarlet Witch in the WandaVision previews. WandaVision really looks interesting. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to marry that woman. <laughs> Make her wear that costume. Walking down the I don't know that that's nice of you to say in this day and age, Albert. But yeah, I, I, the whole thing looks great. I mean, Falcon and Winter Soldier looks great. Yeah, it looks really I, good. And apparently, apparently Loki has been captured by the time cops in the Marvel Universe, according to the logo that he's wearing at the end for that one little brief scene he did because they just started filming stuff. Yeah. The TVA, the Time Variance Authority. Yeah, that's what it is in the Marvel Universe. Every, every major fictional universe has their own version of it. The Time Police, the Time Cops, except Star Wars because... We don't need it. Star Wars doesn't need it. 
Yet. And Sam Raimi's in talks to direct Doctor Strange. I saw that. I think it's sort of odd that we've had this movie announced for a good long while and they don't have anyone attached to direct it. Oh, I think they were working the script out. I think the script writers from Infinity are on it. This is a major script to get worked out. I think this is something you have to go to a director with and say, look, this is X, Y, and Z. We just need you to walk us across it. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not big. I, I like Sam Raimi. Okay. But I was kind of lukewarm when I saw that flash across my phone about an hour ago. What was wrong with the director of the first Doctor Strange? If anything, they just feel they need somebody to step up the game. Do you think Sam can do that? Oh, well, yeah. Why wouldn't he? Eh, I don't know, man. I guess he can. What was the last movie he directed? I know he had a couple of horror flicks come out after the Spider-Man runs. Did he direct that alligator movie? There was a movie called Alligator? No, it had like some alligator thing in it, some crocodile or something. All right. Alligator movie with the crocodile. If they're talking to him, at this point with Marvel, it's just until they get something wrong, I'm not going to begrudge them any anything, or I'm not going to armchair quarterback with the record they have. I mean, they've done plenty wrong. I've not seen anything wrong they've done. Then you must be closing your eyes when you're watching <laughs> these movies. Hey, name one thing. Endgame. Endgame was awesome. Avengers 1, Avengers 2. Avengers 1, Iron Avengers Man 2, 2 awesome. Iron Man 3, Thor I loved 2, Iron Thor, Man 3. Thor I loved 2 it. and 3. Well, Thor Thor 2 is a little slow, but people write on you about Thor, Thor number 3. They can get over it. Thor Ragnarok is not a good movie. Thor Ragnarok is an awesome movie. No, it's not. <laughs> All right. You got any news? Anything interesting? Nothing I can repeat on air. <laughs> what have you got that you can't repeat? <laughs> nah, nothing. I don't know. <laughs> Damn. I'll mute the microphone. Just tell me what you know. <laughs> I'm responsible for Iowa. <laughs> no, no. They Chris were doing Bezos. a head count and I accidentally got up and moved to a different chair to talk to somebody and I screwed the whole thing up. <laughs> All because I was hitting, hitting on some woman. She wasn't even that good looking either. <laughs> then the next night, she ripped up your phone number on national television. She wasn't in Iowa. <laughs> well, let's talk about some comic books. Let's start off with Aftershock Comics, The Man Who Effed Up Time, number one. Writer John Lehman, artist Carl Mostert. Let's talk about the artist real quick, Albert. Did that art seem vaguely familiar to you? Yeah, and I couldn't place it. Quietly. Frank, quietly. No, I wouldn't go that far. No, man. It was all over. I mean, so much so that until I hit like a few pages in and saw a close-up of the face of one of the faces, I thought, it hit me, no, this is almost quietly, but it's not quite quietly. And then I, before that point, I was wondering, is Carl Mostert, the artist on it, is that Frank Quitely's real name? Because no. Frank Quitely, the name Frank Quitely is not the artist's real name. That's a alias he goes by. It's a play on words, quite frankly, Frank Quitely. I think everyone knows that. I don't know that they know this, but I, I got to wondering, did he finally just start calling himself by his real name with the man who effed up time number one? This looks a lot like Quietly stuff. You don't think so? 
Nah, I wouldn't go that far with it. Well, what are your thoughts on the comic? I thought it was a very good comic, though. I did, too. I thought it was a very fun first issue. Yeah, yeah it's pretty entertaining. I mean, yeah, it's fairly standard, don't screw up the time stream type stuff. It is well done. I enjoyed it. Yeah, the main character is very appealing. You're sympathetic to him when you naturally, when logically you shouldn't be sympathetic to him, but they write him well enough that you are sympathetic to him. There's a lot of imagination that went into this, like the landscape. It reminded me of Mobius yeah. with the cops on the back of dinosaurs and pterodactyls flying around and people in top hat. That art really did look like Frank Whiteley's to me up to a certain point. And then I dismissed it when I saw a couple of frames and I thought, no, this, this person is just heavily influenced by him. But you didn't see the Whiteley influence at all. I mean, a little bit, but not enough to think it was even remotely him. I did for like two pages in. I mean, I was really thinking, did he just start going by his real name, whatever that is? Well, I give the writing a five, the art of four, and the dynamic of three. My overall score was four. What about yours? I gave it a straight fours. Yeah. Okay. So we're both in agreement. It's a good book. I mean, it's standard. I'm going to go through time and make things better for myself but screw everything up story but it's it's a good story no it really it really was the character in it you really do like him and it's worth your money it really is aftershock has been surprising me left and right here lately they they put out a few good books here but yeah definitely pick this one up it's a fun time travel story aftershock comics the man who effed up time and us saying effed it's the word e-f-f-e-d yeah that's how it is on the cover Yeah, it's not the actual cuss word. Kind of tongue-in-cheek. The whole thing's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but there's some wonderful designs in it. It's a fun book. I enjoyed reading it. Me too. I didn't get to our World War II murder mystery book. Butcher of Paris, this dark horse. Okay, yeah, I didn't get to it, but you did. Oh, it's still a really, really good book. This would make like a great movie. I think so, too. Like there's enough moving pieces in it, characters with different motivations in it, to do something good with it. It's just, just a fantastic book. I gave the writing a five, art to four, and dynamic a four. Like, if anyone wants a really good non-superhero book to read, I'd read Butcher of Paris. It's, it's right up there with the best of them. Yeah, and it's somewhat historically accurate, too. I was looking up on it. I've read all of the issues except this latest one that came out this week. I had mentioned the last time that I wanted to take time and look it up. Boy, this is this is a fairly accurate little book here. Yep, yep. And yeah, so yeah, we both highly still recommend Butcher of Paris. Jump on that title if you're not rating it. So we got off the start of a couple of good independents are non-big two books. So we'll just jump back and forth between DC and Marvel There wasn't a lot uh, outside of DC and Marvel this week. And Marvel, again, released more books than I really feel that they needed to or is necessary. And everybody else seemed to have a light week. Batman number 88. Another issue in James Tinian's run since he took over from King. Gillum March is the artist on it. I'm beginning to see your point on the art in this comic now. Yeah. It's hitting me harder in this one. That last well, page. Yeah, the, the guy that's doing this is a, is a good artist. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. He's just really, he's not quite my cup of tea. Like his anatomy is a little too. That last page shows Out that. of whack, you know. Yeah. 
like he's a good artist. It's just not, I don't care too much for it most, most of the time. Yeah, there's two females on the last page and the pose is very awkward. Very awkward, almost like they're mannequins whose heads are looking in ways they really shouldn't. So it was a little off-putting. The close-ups of Batman became more off-putting to me. I, beforehand, I'd been saying that it was reminiscent of a 70s detective comic style and this issue was a little more out of whack with me. There was a couple of poses by the Penguin in it and all that didn't that didn't look quite right to me. Not enough to knock me out of it. Would you yeah. agree? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the art, the art's still good in most places. It's just the, the anatomy of the figures, the page layouts and all that stuff's fine. It's just, if a character's got to sort of turn one way or do something, there's too much spaghetti in their spine here and there. No, I, I can definitely see that now. It just wasn't hitting me full yeah. force before, but that last page kind of did stand out to me what do you think about the story story i like the story so far until we got to the last page as far yeah. as whoever this mystery person is trying to take down everybody and, and hiring the hitman a distraction for the most part yeah. to go after bruce wayne it's good i really didn't like that last page no, I understand why you didn't. When people reading it and get to that last page, they who listen to the podcast, they know there are characters you like and characters you don't like. I think the story is still very strong and intriguing. I want to see what Penguin, Riddler, Catwoman, and the rest of them had gotten up to that they're trying to hide now. And I like that Catwoman's relationship with Batman is in jeopardy. Yeah. I like that aspect to it. It's nice to know it's not a given that she's still a bad guy on paper to a degree. So much better than before. I mean, it yeah. really and truly is. I, I think Tinian is knocking it out of the park with this. I very much enjoyed it. Uh, I give the writing a five, the art a three, the dynamic a four. My score for Batman 88 was four. Yeah, I give the writing a four. I, I don't know about the art. I'll, I'll give the art a four, even though I don't care for it. I give the dynamic a one because well, of I the can... last page. Okay, yeah. When I saw that last page, I thought, well, Albert's not going to care much for this. I dropped my art score because I started noticing it without thinking about what you're saying. In other words, I didn't start reading the comic book recalling that you had a bit of a problem with the art or that you were talking about the art. And when I got to the end of the comic book, I was thinking, oh, yeah, I remember Albert saying that. And I discounted it. Or, I mean, I disregarded it. I don't discount yeah. anything you say. You know, my score is a four. Your score is a 3.2, apparently, because of the last page. Batman's back. This book's doing pretty good. This book is a pretty good story. It's yep. far cry above what we had. Let's bop over to Marvel here. We had an Immortal Hulk, great power, one-shot writer Tom Taylor, artist Jorge Molina. The writing of the story was okay, but I thought the art was really, really good. Well, I like the art better than I like the writing. Yeah. I was reading this book. I opened it up. I looked at it. I looked at the cover. I was thinking, no, 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 no. Why is it when you finally have a character's book succeeding? I understand the impulse to capitalize on that and make all the money you can when you get a book back up there in the top 20, top 10. But maybe consider not sacrificing the long-term success for something like a Mortal Hulk for a quick buck. And that's overall what I kind of felt they were doing here. The book got created because of, or released in any way because of Immortal Hulk. But I don't think it was that. It doesn't really seem like too much of an overly hammy 
cashy and it's just here's a one shot with Hulk and Spider-Man and we're going to slap the Immortal Hulk on the cover because hey that's what's selling big and that's sort of it to me I don't like it when the other characters turn into Hulk it makes it like the Green Lantern ring anybody can wear it and while forever it was just one or two individuals Green Lantern rings now everybody in the DC universe has a Green Lantern ring this is where it can get out of out of hand real fast this is like when Busima had said something about Wolverine's claws being in the glove and Burns said you know no 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 then he won't be unique then anybody can put on the gloves and have Wolverine's claws yeah that's not how it works and this is the same thing there should just be Hulk She-Hulk and that's about it Dr. Sampson's a horse of a different color so is the abomination and all they can all come from gamma radiation but spider-man looking like a hulk it just feels contrived and ham-fisted to me i really did feel like it was a money grab that's going to be tossed in the quarter bin by this time next year it's not anything i think anybody should waste their money on especially i got the real feeling that they just shoehorned loki in there as an excuse to have done it loki is almost like an afterthought like well how can we justify spider-man being a hulk Oh, magic. Well, who do we know that's magic? Oh, Loki. Loki's popular right now. So overall, I wasn't taken with it. I enjoyed it for what it was. Just a little one-off issue. Uh, I guess I gave Ryan the 3 to R to 4, Dynamic of 3. Okay, so you gave it a 3.7. All right. I gave the writing a 2, the R to 3, and the Dynamic of 1. My overall score on this was 2. It, it just was not speaking to me. I was not jumping up and down about this. I was having flashbacks to Jeff Loeb's Red Hulk situation. Yeah. Where everybody was a Hulk. If everybody's turning into a Hulk, it's not surprising anymore. It's not entertaining. It's it's, it's not anything. Well, the whole um, Spider-Man thing is not, that's from like years ago. That's not from like the nineties. Hulk is not something that's, uh, there's not a power that's passed around. Yeah. Hulk is, Hulk is, I get you. Hulk is part and parcel of Bruce Banner. There's no Bruce Banner without the Hulk. There's no Hulk without Bruce Banner, but you enjoyed it. Yeah. For what it was. Well, let's jump back to DC. Let's talk Joker and Harley criminal and uh, criminal sanity. Number three. I've kind of reached my tolerance level for both of these characters. Do you even count the version of, of Joker in this book as Joker? Not anymore, I know. I can see how, like, if you do, like, an Elseworld or different version of Harley, you can get this version of Harley out of it. Yeah. But not whatever this Joker is. This Joker is just a dude with some face paint on, you know? Yeah, he looks like he's cosplaying between the Joker and the Crow at a low-level convention. Yeah, it's nothing. They still do the thing where they try to do the two different art styles. It seems... I actually want to say the art's probably a little bit better from the other issues. It's not by simple way of when it goes from one style to the other, it's not as jarring, I guess. Yeah. And, and the part that's done in color on it isn't as bad as what it's been. I mean, it's still, I, I really don't give a crap about this book, but it's, this issue was slightly better than the other issues. And I don't even remember what I gave the other issues. Well, you weren't jumping up and down about the other issues. No. You uh, you weren't as complimentive about the art as you are in this one. The art is the only reason I would even pick this up, and I don't know if that's a complete justification for picking this up. Uh, I've reached my tolerance level for both of these characters, and at this point, it's hard for me to discern if it's because of their oversaturation that I enjoyed this less, or if this book is now just becoming more and more bland and boring each issue. You know, if it's dropping in writing quality. I always liked the art. I still like the art in it. I gave the writing a two, the art a five, and the dynamic a one. My overall score on it's 2.7. If you're invested in it and 
are a Harley Joker fan continue, but if you're not overly vested in it, this is one of those black label books. They cost a little more, so save your money. What was your score? Uh, I gave the writing a, a two, I guess. Uh, yeah. The art, art a three, and I okay. gave it a two. All right, so you came out to you came out basically where I am, just a little bit of a different measure. Okay, yeah. it's just kind of lost it for me, and I it's really difficult for me to tell right now if it's the oversaturation of Joker and Harley and everything. I've got to do a review on Birds of Prey, Harley Quinn, and Birds of Prey the movie. Everything I've heard is, oh, you're going to enter, be entertained by it, getting fairly good reviews, but I'm not jumping up down to go see it because it just feels like every time I turn around, there's Joker and Harley. And it's not even really versions I recognize of them anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah. If I saw a Bruce Tim version of Joker and Harley, I might be curious. Back over to Marvel for Ant-Man number one by Zeb Wells and art by Dylan Burnett. I thought the book wanted to be funny and clever. I thought it should have been funny and clever. To me, it wasn't either. I was okay with it. I, th- I enjoyed it. I don't know about the thing about him being practically borderline homeless. That seems sort of stupid. I mean, I like the plot and, and them trying to sort of stick insect villains in there with them and all that stuff. I, I liked it. Well, Swarm showed up, and immediately when I see Swarm, I think Spider-Man and his amazing friends, the yeah. 80s animated series that came on Saturday morning. And it's on, oddly enough, it's on Disney Plus now. I understand what he's trying to do with the homeless situation with Scott. It's trying to give this character more of a Paul Rudd quality a Paul yeah. Rudd voice, like, don't cuss, you can't say the F word, and then we skip ahead and he's saying the F word. They're not literally saying the F word, they're bleeping it out, but you know what he's saying. And I just get the feeling that this is going to be another Ant-Man slash Wasp title that's going to be forgotten, like all the other ones that you're trying to recall has come before it, but can't quite seem to recall any of those stories at the moment. You just know that they exist. I like the character. I like the movies. The movies work real well for me, but this may be one instance where we get one of these movies every two to three years with Ant-Man and Wasp. Maybe they just work better in small doses like that. If you're not looking to jump on a title, and even if you are, I don't recommend this be the title you jump on. I know I'm being a little bit harsh, but I mean, that's just the way this book came across for me. What did you enjoy about it? I don't know. I just thought it was a fun comic. Fun comic? Yeah. Just... You think it's worth their money if they're just looking for something to get into? Uh, Yeah, I do, as far as this one's concerned. Okay. Albert says, bye. I say, save your money. I gave the writing a one, the art a two, the dynamic a one. My score was 1.7. What about yours, Albert? I gave the writing an art a three, dynamic a four. I like it pretty well. You're up there at 3.3 levels. It's a recommend from Albert. Me, not so much. I don't know what I'm looking for in an Ant-Man comic, but I know this one isn't it. And back at DC, let's go with Young Justice number 13 by Brian Michael Bendis. Yeah, by Brian Michael Bendis and Art Omig and Grell, as well as the regular artist in it. Yeah, it did. John Timms, yeah. The Mike Grell pages knocked it out of the park. Those were some really, really nice pages. Yeah, I don't know why they don't put him on a miniseries or give him another miniseries to... I mean, he, he defined Green Arrow for them. They should give him another Warlord miniseries or something like that. I like Oming's art. Kudos to whoever was editing this and assigning pages because you assigned the right pages to the right people on it. I thought the art from all three was each in turn pretty damn good. Yeah, all three artists did really great jobs. Oming's odd. I always like him when he works with Bendis. Yeah. I don't like, I almost don't like him when he does his own stuff. I don't, I don't I, know why. It just seems like he works 
I like his he art. He works really great with Bendis, but when he's by himself, I have a tendency just not to care for it. Him, Bendis' own powers. Powers. They, you could tell they had a back and forth. They had one of those, they had chemistry going between them. It strikes me that this is a wink and a nod to Bendis and Oming having worked together in the past. As much as I like Oming's art, I think he's an even better writer. One of my all-time favorite Marvel Thor stories is Thor Disassembled, and Oming wrote that. Yeah, that's a very, very good story. You can read it at any time and it works. It, it just works. It's the end. It is Ragnarok. It's the end of Thor. It's the end of everything. That is a hell of a storyline that he goes through because Oming knows his mythology. He is really big into it. But again, I don't know why they haven't slapped Grell on something. Grell is clearly still in the zone. Just knock those pages right out. I can't imagine anything him doing miniseries-wise just not selling right off the shelf or even just a graphic novel. Novel standalone, you know he's got it in him. Now that we've got the good out of the way, Bendis is going to Bendis. <laughs> you know, I actually really liked his writing in this issue. This seems to be a lot better issue on that end from what we've been getting out of him as far as his book's concerned. Out of everything. Or any, or any of his books are concerned at the, at the moment, really. No, well, I started to say, out of everything that he's doing at DC, Young Justice tends to be the better of them. Yeah. I've noticed that when he's writing two people, like he was writing Warlord and Connor... Superboy talking. The dialogue was coherent and together was fair storytelling. It was pretty good storytelling. It read like Bendis. And those are the pages that Omig's doing. Even in the flashback sequences that Mike Grell's doing, he's telling a coherent story because it's just one voice. But, oh, he just can't stand to have only one or two characters talking. So we immediately pop back and have 46 characters on one page, all shouting phrases that may or may not have something to do with the story at hand. When we go back to the Young Justice where the rest of them are, you don't know who's talking to who, and you don't get the sense that any of them are talking to the other. They're just saying things aloud. Yeah, but he does that in all his books. I know, but it's getting worse. I mean, we've talked about this with legion of superheroes yeah it just seemed like young justice was looking at you off of the page shouting things at you when it didn't involve warlord the story about warlord we could have had an entire warlord issue and i would have been good with it i actually gave the writing a four and the art dynamic a five i gave the writing a two and it's just cause of the group pages again you shouldn't feel like they're yelling things just for you to know the art i gave a five also the dynamic i gave a one my score on this was 2.7 however I do look forward to Young Justice and not just out of anything else Michael Bendis is doing. There's enough good in it that it's still an enjoyable comic. I think it's worth the money, too. The art is definitely worth your money. We both recommend Young Justice number 13. I'm just not scoring it real high until Bendis gets crowd control issues taken care of on dialogue. Dark Agnes, number one, from Marvel Comics, writer Becky Cloonan, and art by Luca Pizzari. Where have we seen Dark Agnes before, Albert? <laughs> I don't the book, know. The book seemed to think that I was familiar with Dark Agnes. Yeah, I seems, gotta tell you. Yeah, I don't know what the deal was. It felt like he was coming in like the third arc of a book. Well, it really did. It was like, we should be familiar with Dark Agnes, if not anybody else in this book. And I just wasn't. This is a Robert E. Howard character, is it not? Oh, it is? I didn't see Conan on it. Well, that may be why I wasn't, why I didn't feel comfortable. I kind of felt like the whole book was going in circles. And then by the end, it was because we were going back to the place they left. And the rest of the book was apparently just filler. Yeah. It's not that it's bad. It was just uninteresting to me. 
Yeah, I didn't care for it. Also, like, best of my knowledge, the Agnes stuff was not something published by him while Robert E. Howard was alive. Yeah. That was like one of those things where, where we got all these manuscripts and stuff written up, and we'll just publish what we got or something like that. I didn't really care for it. Scraping the bones of Robert E. Howard, like so many other things gets done now. Well, I just don't really feel there's enough there to hook anyone. I don't know that Dark Agnes has a fan base. I found the art to be serviceable, nothing beyond that. Some of the nuances seem to be lost in the heavy-handed line finishes. People are doing this on iPads now, aren't they? They're not doing it on Bristol board, are they? So I mean, far I, as art well, I mean, as far as like inking and coloring goes, yeah. I'd imagine almost all that's done on a digital tablet or a computer of some sorts. Pencil work, it just probably depends on the artist. Well, as much as I like Terry Dodson, I noticed a similar situation in a different way on X-Men Fantastic Four than I did to Luca's art on Dark Agnes. It seems like very heavy-handed finishes, line finishes on Dark Agnes, and I don't care for it. I think there's something to be said to pencils and ink remaining on the Bristol board. Coloration off of the Bristol board is fine. I mean, it's always been off of the Bristol board, but I still think that both the pencils and ink should be done on Bristol board, because I think it's a better quality so long as you're going to stay in print if you're doing an online comic that's a completely different situation there's noticeably something weird about the art it wasn't bad art wasn't a bad book i just wasn't interested and i'll be honest i don't know how much my natural aversion to the french plays into my review i gave the writing a two the art a three and the dynamic a one my score for this book was two yeah, the writing and art, the same for you. I guess I'd give Dynamic a three. Like, the, the overall package is okay. I guess it's like Marvel paid X amount of dollars just to have whatever they want to from the Robert E. Howard estate. So yeah. they're just trying to get their money out of it, I guess. Yeah, I still say Conan showing up in Marvel Cinematic. Hide and watch. He's coming. That's coming. I That's what I, I want. I want some more PG-13 Conan movies because that first PG-13 Conan movie was so good. Deadpool's going to be rated R. So Conan could be rated R, too. I mean, Marvel Cinematic's completely open to that. There's an Aliens movie in the work. I thought for sure that Disney, after their acquisition with Fox, I thought for sure that Aliens and Predator would be put on the back burner, and it appears Predator has. There's active work, pre-production work, on another Aliens prequel, according to Ridley Scott. I don't doubt it. When was that first Alien movie? Like, 77? Uh, No, it was 1979, yeah. Ever since the first movie ever got put in production, there has always been an Alien movie in production. Well, that's true, but I kind of thought For every 20 that get in production, one of them get made. Okay. Well, that's fair enough. But Ridley Scott seems to think there's something to it. Let's talk about Captain America, the end. Writer Eric Larson, artist Eric Larson. I'm going to point this out. I caught it in the back, and apparently news has picked up onto it. Comic book news sites have picked up onto it, too. They misprinted in the back. They put that Captain America was created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Captain America was created by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. Yeah. I think that was just an oversight. You publish so many things that are created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby that some intern somewhere just overlooked it, checked off on the approval, and went on with their life. So I don't think that was anything malicious. Do you? No, I don't think that's a mistake that should have necessarily happened, but I don't. It's an honest mistake. To yeah, extent. it's an honest mistake. It's an unfortunate mistake, and Marvel's correcting it. I thought this was weird, wild, and whacked out. It did feel like a classic Stan and Jack story. And I know what I'm saying there. 
there's a difference between Joe and Jack's Captain America and Stan and Jack's Captain America. And this felt and looked like Stan and Jack's Captain America. Yeah, I, I really liked it. I thought he did a great job. I did too. I'm not a big fan of Larson overall for a few reasons. And there's some places where I feel his art delivers and there's some places where I feel his art does not deliver. Where, But you can't knock him on technicality. And he purposefully designed this book to look like Jack Kirby was drawing it, to homage it. You clearly know Jack is not drawing it, but the homage is strong enough that you truly appreciate what he's trying to do. And this very much fits the story. It very much fits Captain America at the end. Hats off to Larson on this. He delivered. Yeah, I thought he did a great job. Even back in his Spider-Man days, he had an obvious Kirby influence on everything he did. So him aping Kirby for an actual Captain America book isn't too far stretched to what he normally does anyway. No, it's really so. not. He is influenced by Kirby, and heavily, heavily so, and there's no argument against that. But on his Spider-Man stuff, it struck me a lot more of Ditko influence on it as well. He straddles the two styles. Yeah. He really does. Kirby did the cover to Amazing Fantasy number 15. If you look on that, Spider-Man's a little more bulky than he is in the actual book because Ditko was drawing a more realistic version of Teenager. The reason Jack didn't get to design Spider-Man is because Jack kept coming back with bulky characters, muscled up characters. And that's not what Stan felt Spider-Man should be. And so he walks across the hall to Steve and Steve, yeah, Steve draws a teenager in a bodysuit. Larson's run on Amazing Spider-Man was able to capture the spirit of both of those. Spider-Man was still skinny and straggly in Larson's run and not look like he hit the gym every day necessarily, but was still he, more. Yeah, he was also having to follow up on McFarlane. So I think whenever he followed up on McFarlane, he was trying to still keep the art sort of the same tone. Yeah, be able to throw your legs over your head while swinging on a web upside down sort of thing. Yeah. So, but yeah, Captain America, the end was really good. It had a much more soft ending to it than a lot of these, the, the end books do, but it was suitable for Captain America. It, it felt right. So I gave the writing a four, the art of four, and the dynamic of five. My overall score was 4.3. I gave it a fives across the board. Fives across the board. Yeah. Do you think it is as good as Venom the End, which we both kind of think is the best of these books so far that have come out this year? No, I don't okay. think. I think Venom the End was so unexpectedly different and yeah. still great at the same time. It sort of outdoes. I can see where you could get Captain America out of this. I mean, this is borderline like some type of Batman Joker. You could swap Red Skull with Joker, Batman with Captain America, and you're almost at the same comic. Yeah, there, there was a lot of meta-commentary going yeah. on that you require Captain America for, though, that Batman couldn't have delivered in this. But yes, you're right. So far as the character dynamics go, you could. I couldn't help but feeling that Mark Greenwald would have been proud of this story. Yeah, it's, it's a great story. Yeah. And it's, yeah, and Mark, it's fairly it's it's a fairly standard post-apocalypse story. It's Cap's running around and like everyone's getting infected with a Joker. A Red, Red Skull virus. Everyone's yeah. getting infected with the Red Skull virus and he's just trying to fight through it and, and find survival and everything and it ends in a very captain america way out of this current run of the end books and we're talking the ones that just come out in the month of january and february of this year for their the end celebration or whatever it is they're doing you and i recommend captain america the end dr strange and venom yeah I, it'd be those three it'd be yeah those and three the rest of them just kind of yeah, the rest of them just kind of fall by the wayside yeah. they're, they're forgettable stuff but those three were worth them doing a series of the end comics 
And back to DC Comics for Crimes of Passion One-Shot. This is their romantic $9.99 80-page giant Valentine's Day celebration book. You know, they always usually do something for one of the holidays like this. I was kind of 50-50 on this one. I was all in on the Villain's Christmas thing and highly recommended it. On this one, I'm kind of 50-50. All the stories struck me as being fair to good, but nothing above just good whereas yeah whereas in the christmas one you had you had some really good and great ones this one didn't quite get there to me the art was great all the way through it i thought the art was pretty good all the way through it yeah i really like the wild cat ted grant one was a real yeah, good one. that was good like i said i think the first couple which was that one and a batman one were the stronger ones and the one with the question had, i didn't care too much for the writing on that one but that had great art but the middle stuff wasn't much of anything yeah, like, and that's even why... The, even the Plastic Man, when I was really looking forward to having a Plastic Man story, I didn't really care for it. I agree. I'm exactly, I'm right there with you. It knocked it down to 50-50, and not one of the stories got past. That was good. It's not a must read. And given the pricing on these books, it's important. If you're on the fence about it, then let me kind of sway you off the fence. There are better things to spend your money on unless you just really enjoy buying 80-page giants. Yeah. And there are people out there that do that. Tim Bryant. I gave it threes across the board. Nah, I gave it, I gave the writing a three, the art of four, and dynamic a one, because I just don't think comic books should cost this much. Well, that's fair enough. And so we, yeah, you came out just below a three. I came out at three. Just unless you're into collecting these 80 page giants, there's nothing that stands out about this book. In direct opposition, there was something that stood out about the villain's Christmas book. Yeah. Those were a lot of really good to great stories in it, I thought. Let's go to Marauders by Jerry Dugan and Stefano Caselli. I just want to start off with a side note. Back in the day when Claremont was writing the Morlocks, we never knew if Mask was a man or woman. But clearly, at some point, they decided that he was a man because Callisto addresses him as old man. Yeah. And, yeah, and he's off playing golf like an old man. So I thought that was kind of interesting. That was something that had gotten by me that we decided whether I always thought Mask was a scary character to start with. The less you knew about Mask, the scarier Mask was. This is a character that would only get a panel or two at a time and then eventually came up dead and apparently he's back and what have you. What did you think about Marauders number seven, the latest entry into this? Uh, I liked it well enough. It's still a real good book. I didn't care for this issue as much as the other ones, but this is sort of a, you know, we're establishing a character and sort of fit him in the story and everything. So it's still a solid read well enough, I suppose. I gave the writing a three, art a four, Dynamic three. We're not going too far apart on this book, but even while reading it, knowing that this was a non-event book where we weren't going to find out what had happened to Kitty and Lockheed, and I'm here to tell you right now, Lockheed the dragon better not be f insert bad word here dead. I, I feel by Lockheed the same way I feel by Crypto and all these little animals in these books. Lockheed better not be dead. I realized reading this, I have intense feelings for the events and characters in this book. Whether it's Emma, whether it's Sebastian, whether I like them, whether I hate them. Therefore, to me, this must be a very good book. Does that make sense? Yeah. I gave the writing a five, the art of four, and the dynamic of five. My score was 4.7 because even on a book where we're just establishing a few things and setting up for the next few issues and such, I was still making notes to myself and having opinions, being moved by what was going on in here. So clearly 
Jerry Dugan's doing something right in the writing of it. I like the art, too. To no one's surprise, we continue to recommend Marauders. Yeah. I'm going to take this opportunity. I did scan a few other books. I did read through a couple of other books that are on the rotation. Continue to stay away from Doctor Doom. The book is awful. I don't think either of our opinions would change on the other two X books that came out this week. I, I think it was Excalibur that came out as well, and we're still kind of lukewarm on it. But we are checking in with those books that we don't regularly review, and uh, as soon as there's a change in something, we'll tell you. Speaking of a change in something, what did you think of Justice League number 40 by Robert Venditti and Doug Monk and Jamie Mendoza? I like the change of pace, but it's just sort of... They said when Vendetti was coming on the book, the book would take place prior to the end of Snyder's run. But I, where do you even fit it? Like a year, two years back, you fit it in the run somewhere? I don't, I, got, I don't know. I got news for them. They've got a couple of problems if that's the case. Scott Snyder did tweet, and this is an exact quote. No, to be clear... Justice League number 40 is a new story that's set before our run. Robert Vendetti, Jamie Mendoza, and Doug Monk are doing something great and their own. Our story evolves into the project with Greg Capula, but you can read it without having read anything prior. It's not that it's confusing as hell. I understand this is set before it, but at one point, Batman's talking to Alfred over the Batwing's communication system, and it's clearly Alfred. He calls him Alfred, and then Clark says, one page later, Clark says that Alfred is dead. Is that a story point, do you think? It's not like it was like a visual slip-up where someone just drew Alfred's head by accident. It's in the writing. Yeah. So it has to be a plot point. To have Superman one page later say that Alfred is dead. The only thing I could think of, it would be if it's sort of like Tony Stark, like in the movies, how he's got Jarvis. Well, I thought of that too, but there's nothing... You don't visually see Jarvis in the movies. No. Jarvis did exist in the Marvel Cinematic continuity as a person, but he doesn't have a physical manifestation unless you count Vision, which is a completely different entity coming about a completely different way. To set this up, Daxamites, led by the Eradicator, basically Daxamites are Kryptonians. They're like isolationist Kryptonians or yeah, something they're, like that. Yeah, they're distance. They're Kryptonians that settled on another world in ancient times yeah. and developed into their own thing. Now they're coming to the Earth to... Take over the earth, and when they're standing around talking about what they can do, and Daxamites do not have the hang-up with kryptonite that Superman or other Kryptonians have, and Superman says, I really do not like magic, so they decide to use magic against them. They ask Wonder Woman about the Justice League Dark, and Wonder Woman says, oh, they're too busy to help. There is a population of Supermans coming to decimate and take over the Earth, I really don't think of anything else that could possibly be considered a priority to a team that sometimes works with the talking monkey. Yeah. That, I don't even know why they even brought up Justice League Dark. There's no point to it. If they had not brought him up, I wouldn't have even thought about it, and we could have all just completely ignored that little loophole. Other than the confusion about where this is set, it's set before number 40, so we'll never... I, I'm going to assume we will never get a Justice League that takes place after Scott Snyder's Justice League until he's finished with The Batman Who Laughs and the sequel to Metal and everything. This is just putting me off in continuity dc comics yeah it really I, it really I'm the does. same way i was wanting something better i was looking forward to robert and doug taking over this title and i read this first issue and there's so many problems for what is a straightforward comic book story in contrast 
to what we were talking about, and we'll have a special coming up where we were talking about the Justice League International trade paperback. It would be so nice if the Justice League were in some way relatable again, or at least understandable. It's not that they're not understandable. It's just that, oh dear God, editorial, where in the hell are you? I gave the writing a two, the art of three, and the dynamic of one. The overall score is a two. I don't think it's worth your money to pick up. What about you, Albert? Yeah, I gave the dynamic a one simply because of all the continuity crap. I gave the writing and art both three. So you're at a 2.7 and I'm at a two. Just give Grant back the Justice League if he wants to. Give it to, call Mark Wade. Apologize for everything that uh, Didio has done and just somebody do something. All right, we're down to the last two for the week. X-Men. Fantastic Four, number one. Writer Chip Zdarsky and art by Terry Dodson on it. Your predictions seem to be coming true in this book, Albert. Yeah, this will probably set some stuff up as far as the Franklin Richards dynamic with the X-Men. Well, it really does. It goes a long way for it. And it plays out in a very interesting manner. I was kind of wary about this title coming out. I shouldn't have been because Zdarsky is strong. He's one of the best current writers out there. He's proved in the past he can pull things like this off. This is definitely worth your money. It ties nicely into what's going on with the X-Men. I love Dodson's art, but like I said earlier in regards to the art on the Dark Agnes book, it seems a little off or maybe rushed in a couple of places, but it's still Dodson art, so it's still great. Yeah. I I love that they rely heavily on the flashbacks to the situations, the major situations that the Fantastic Four and the X-Men have had to deal with together, like the previous X-Men Fantastic Four miniseries, which came out, dear God, 25 years ago, written by Claremont. And there's After two, the wasn't, there, wasn't there also one like in the late 90s? There may have been. There's not an overt reference to that. They referenced the classic one, and also the fact that Kitty Pride would babysit uh, yeah. Franklin from time to time. I got a question that, about, yeah. uh, about Kitty Pride. Oh, someone sent me some messages on Facebook about it, too. Oh, okay. And like, I never really thought about it. What's the extent of her flight or levitation or whatever? She can use air as steps. When but, she's okay. moving through air, yeah, you'll see if there's people that are writing her that understand how it works and that have bothered to read the notebook that Claremont had left behind and anything in the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, air is like stairs to her. It's like she's climbing a ladder. So you'll see her move her foot up slightly unfaze her foot and push up the rest of her as she continues to go. Anybody that can fly in a standard manner like Storm using the winds or the Human Torch, they've got air superiority on her. She basically, it's more of a convenience for her than anything else. She's gotten to the point now where she can control different parts of her phasing to give her a little bit of mass to drop her down or raise her up or what have you. When she goes underground, that's equated to swimming. She has to make motions like she's swimming through a thick substance to move around in. Does that help? It does. There we go. Stan Daniel, your kitty pride authority. <laughs> like he'd better not be language edited for your protection. Yeah. <laughs> well, what was your take on the book? <laughs> It was really good. I really enjoyed it. I mean, it's your standard get up of like, hey, we got to sort of fight each other for a, a issue or two. And it's a good book. I, I liked it. Dodson did a really great job on the art, and Zdarsky did a great job on the writing. It was a super, super good book. That's how we're going to pronounce his name until he calls in and corrects us. <laughs> During the course of an interview. Yeah, it really was. I'm I'm looking forward to the rest of this. And for some reason, I just did not think this was a good idea. And it turns out to be a pretty good idea. Yep. All right. And our final book for the week. Did we give a score to X-Men Fantastic Four? 
Go ahead. Give your score to X-Men Fantastic Four. For X-Men Fantastic Four, I give... I guess I give it fives across the board. I really thought it was a great book. I gave the writing a five. I gave the art a four. I gave the dynamic a five. My score was 4.7. So, yeah, I highly recommend it. I highly recommend it. And our last comic book to come out this week, Darth Vader, number one, written by Greg Pak, art by Raphael Inko. Every Vader book from Marvel, and I know I'm a Star Wars sycophant. I know I am a Star Wars fan. I know that Albert thinks there's something wrong with me because I do honestly enjoy most all material that's come out since Disney's bought Star Wars and even before it from the prequels forward. But well, I don't every... think something's wrong with you. I just think you're wrong. That's the difference. Every Vader book from Marvel has been great. And this first issue really promises the same. Yeah. I, I really thought it was a good setup. They've been keeping something under wraps. There's a surprise on the last page. We'll let it remain a surprise. But basically, this book starts off with Vader hunting down. This book takes place immediately after Empire Strikes Back, just like the new Star Wars series does. Vader is immediately hunting down every trace of Luke's path to deal with the people that he views has made Luke weak, has somehow taken his son from him, and that leads somewhere very surprising at the end. And it's possibly a continuity changer. I don't actually believe it is because I believe there's an external explanation for what occurs. Yeah, it's a shocker, so. Yeah, usually uh, when they do Vader books, that's that's the better the best Star Wars books they do. Pack did a great job as far as establishing Vader and, and using things from the from the movies, from the prequels and the original trilogy to sort of characterize Vader. Art was good. It worked good. The last page ain't what they're selling it as, I don't think. No. But, but I think there's a, easy, a, ver, a very easy explanation for it. Yeah, we just don't know what it is yet. And the first story arc will probably be dealing with that. Yeah. I gave it fives across the board. I recommended it as much as I enjoyed a couple of books this week. This one was my favorite. How about you? I gave the writing a five, the art of four, and dynamic of five. So you gave it a 4.7, but we yeah. both recommend it. This is a really good read, and it takes up immediately after Empire Strikes Back. Uh, something else. Okay, I got a couple of questions here from listeners. The first one up is from Mark S. Mark says, greetings from Atlanta, Georgia. I'm going to stop right there. Albert, what state do you think we have the most listeners in? Georgia. Yeah, that kind of surprises me. We're strong in our home state of Alabama, but Georgia has surpassed all listenership in the last uh, five or six episodes. And every time I look at where the most listeners are coming from or the breakdown of the cities that are listening, Atlanta has been number one consistently for the last five podcast episodes. So I just wanted to give a special shout out to Atlanta and Georgia in general. Thank you guys. And to those of you in Alabama, you can do better. There are more people out there you can shove this podcast down the throat of. Eric Forrester, I know you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> you're not doing a good enough job about getting this podcast out there. Georgia is kicking your butts. I'm just kidding. Thank you all. Even Eric thought that was interesting. We have more listeners in Georgia than we do anywhere else. We got listeners in almost every state. There's one or two states that I haven't seen pop up on the roster, but we'll get there eventually. Anyway, Mark S. asks, this is a goofy fanboy question, and I'm not even sure that you've had it asked to you before on the podcast. Can Wolverine's claws penetrate Captain America's shield? My friends and I at the comic book stores that I go to seems to have different opinions on this. What is yours? 
I've been asked that a lot. Albert, did you used to get the same question, right? Yeah. I mean, this is nothing new. The answer is, inside the standard, typical, mainstream Marvel universe, Wolverine's pure adamantium claws could penetrate the vibranium-slash-adamantium mix of Captain America's shield, but only if it had enough force behind it to do so. Typically, Wolverine's claws, the only force it has behind it, are Wolverine's arms. So does Wolverine by himself have enough power to penetrate the shield with his claws? The answer is no. My answer is yes, if the shield was stationary. But like if he gets in a fight with Cap... Cap knows how to wield that shield and to take a hit on it. Yeah. To properly deflect it and to make and to not give it like a straight ahead, you know, stabbing or hit. He'd move it at an angle or something like that where it wouldn't be a direct hit to it. Well, it also has to be it or something yeah. like that. Wolverine still does not have enough power to get those claws through that shield. If maybe the Hulk does. If you put the shield on the ground and the Hulk has Wolverine's claws for whatever reason, but the mixture and the design of that shield, yada, yada, yada. At least this was John Byrne's take on it. Yeah. Is that Wolverine doesn't have the force to go through the shield. Of course, at the time John Byrne said this, Wolverine's claws were still bionic and not a natural part of him. And you can see that design in the early official handbooks of the Marvel Universe. I hope that helps somewhat. I'm just going by what I read John Byrne say. Yes and no. The next question is from Melinda. And Melinda R. and Melinda asks, what exactly is Albert's problem with Harley Quinn? And Melinda goes on to say a couple of nice things. And thank you for listening, Melinda and all, but we'll keep it to that one question right there. So, Albert, what exactly is your problem with Harley Quinn? Mostly just overexposure. I'm just tired of her. Yeah, and I said that earlier. First off, this is not the Harley Quinn I was initially introduced to with Batman the Animated Series. Well, to me, that's not an issue. The... the... Beyond the overuse, it goes back to the me. I don't consider her a victim the way they try to play her off as a victim. Yeah. Beyond uh, it's it's that. So she's she's definitely not a victim. This is not somebody that has fallen to Joker's mesmerizing skills or whatever because he doesn't have them. He's an insane sociopath and or, or psychopath, and she's drawn to him. Yeah, that's it. And I'm I'm guilty of it, too. There are things that I like Harley Quinn in. There are things that I don't care for Harley Quinn in. But right now, I'm kind of in Harley Quinn burnout. Albert just got there a little bit before me. Is that fair? Sounds fair to me. Robert B. asks, Who is your favorite all-time super team lineup and why? For instance, is it the original Avengers or the Justice League from the 80s? Just who is your favorite super team ever and why? God, I don't, I don't know. You never stopped to think about this. <laughs> I, I guess the the standard Big Seven Justice League. Grant Morrison's run, not necessarily his run, just the main, just Big Seven. You know, yeah, the Big Seven, I suppose. So Aquaman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman, Green Lantern, and Flash. The Martian Manhunter. And Martian Manhunter. Cause I can't count to seven. No, I can see that. That's my favorite lineup at the Justice League. My all-time favorite super team is the version of the X-Men that went through the Dark Phoenix saga all the way up to, say, X-Men number 143. Because that's largely where I got introduced to comics. And that's Storm, Wolverine, Cyclops, Jean Grey, Angel, Nightcrawler, Colossus, and then later Kitty Pride. So that's my favorite super team. And the reason why is because... That's what got me into comic books. 
I'd also like to point out that they had a Blackbird that they flew around in, and that Blackbird had a very luxurious interior, and it also had a cappuccino maker on board, because there's one scene where you see Wolverine getting a cup of coffee on board the Blackbird. And you may not know this, but all the Blackbirds that came from Lockheed Martin had cappuccino makers on board them. Okay. I say that because my wife gets mad every time I say it. <laughs> She's like, no, I've seen them. I've worked on them. I've, they, you, you barely have, you barely have room for one, maybe two people in the later design. <laughs> I always like to point out, no, right here, you see John Byrne did the diagram. There's the cappuccino maker right next to the Shi'ar boosters. Are you telling me John Byrne lied? I can't believe that John Byrne would lie to me about anything. He's a Canadian. <laughs> All right, Albert, that's all the questions we're going to do this week. We'll have, uh, we'll go into some of the more serious questions I've got set aside here next week. Again, Jason and Erica, if y'all just hold on, we'll get to you next week. Albert, you got anything else going on? Uh, Not this week. Okay. Well, that's it. As always, follow us on Facebook as both Kingdom Casts, C-A-S-T-S, and Kingdom Comics. And of course, Gmail, Kingdom Comics and Kingdom Casts, C-A-S-T-S. Send us your questions. Send us your suggestions. Send us anything. Do share us with your friends. We greatly appreciate this. We've seen wonderful growth on the program and continuing to go forward. We've got a special interview with Chris Faison that should be out by next week, along with a couple of special trade paperback suggestions. What are we calling them? We're not calling them weekly readers, are we? What did you say they were? I just called it Kingdom Cast Book Club. Okay, Kingdom Cast Book Club. Yeah, we're going to start issuing one a week on uh, trade paperback suggestions you can pick up and read as well. If you got any questions or suggestions, just send them to us via Gmail or Facebook or any way you want to contact us is just fine. We appreciate y'all greatly. Thank you so very much. Albert, I guess that's it for the week. You got All right. Say goodnight to him. Good night, everybody. Lockheed the Dragon better not be dead. <laughs>